Good morning, everybody. Glad that you are with us today. It's a beautiful day outside, isn't it? Sun is shining. Hey, it'd still be a beautiful day if the sun wasn't shining, though, right? It's another day to be in his house. Another day to be with y'all. I love it. Love this church. Uh, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the beautiful day that you have blessed us with. Lord, I pray that you would meet with us today as we meet together with brothers and sisters in your house. I pray that you would inhabit our praise as we sing our praises to you, our worship to you, as we give of our tithes and our offerings in worship to you. And even as we listen to your word, we do so in worship to you. I pray that you would guide and direct uh, my, my words that you would use them to just to help people grow, help people learn so that they could be a, a better Christian for you. But Lord, I also think of those that might be here that are not saved. And maybe today that you would challenge them from your word how they can be saved and that they need to be saved and that they would take that step, step of faith. Lord, I just thank you so much for your goodness. Your goodness and your blessings, Lord, you are amazing. Thank you, God, for all that you do for us, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, let me give you a couple, uh, a few announcements this morning. Uh, next Sunday we're having a Carrion Fellowship dinner following the worship service. Um, March 10th we're going to be uh, having the Lord's Supper and Deacon's Fund offering. March 16th is uh, Barb Solomon's memorial service at 3 p.m. And uh, Brother Ron has asked that if you plan to go to the, uh, uh, the meal, the meeting, um, <clears throat> that, uh, that you would sign up. He needs to hear that. I mean, he needs to know that. Can you not hear me, sir? It's okay? Okay. Um, okay, so, uh, yeah, please, please sign up. That's out in the foyer. Um, it's not in the bulletin because I forgot to put it in there, but we're going to have our Easter egg stuffing party March 24th. March is a busy month we got going on. Uh, but March 24th, uh, we're going to be uh, doing that, having pizza here, um, as we've done for many years. Uh, March 30th is the Easter egg hunt down at the Midway Community Center. It starts at noon, but we're going to meet here at uh, 1045. I think I'll just call it that, 1045 because uh, we've been we've been doing really well at getting set up and ready to go, um, so that's that day. Um, and then March 31st is our Easter services, uh, an 8 a.m. early service, a uh, 9 a.m. carry-in breakfast, and then a 10 a.m. Easter worship service. So no 11 o'clock service on Easter Sunday. All right, announcements are out of the way. Um, let's go ahead and would you stand with me as we sing to the Lord today, lift up our voices in praise. We're going to start out with, and can it be? <clears throat> and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me, who caused his pain, for me, who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how 
God should die for me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free for oh my God it found out me amazing love how can it be that thou my God shouldst die for me no condemnation now I dread Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living hand, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and Through Christ my own amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amen. That great, that's a great song. I love to hear about that. God loved us so much he died for us. All right, we're going to continue on singing. Uh, the next song uh, is... If you all saw the church Facebook page, I posted a song to it uh, because uh, it's a new song uh, that we're going to start today. So uh, I'm going to do my best to get us going here. Okay. Did, y'all, did anybody actually listen to the song this week? Yeah. Oh, my. None of y'all did. All right. This is going to be interesting. All right. <laughs> it's called The Goodness of God. Amen. 
That was the very first time you've ever heard that song before. Well, you all faked it really well with me. I appreciate that. I love that song. I just heard it for the first time at a, my, a pastor's meeting I was at in February. And uh, they sang that, and it just hit me. God is good. And because He's good, we ought to be faithful to Him as well and praise Him and worship Him. All right, you may be seated. Just kind of going on a little bit with this theme of, you know, and can it be that he would die for me? How amazing that is and the goodness of God. We're going to continue on page 230. Uh, His name is wonderful. I know how it goes. I'm trying to find the right note. (laughs) His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. Jesus, my Lord. He is the mighty King, Master of everything. His name is wonderful. Jesus, my Lord, He's the great shepherd, the rock of all ages. Almighty God 
good singing. Uh, last song we're going to sing this morning is, uh, um, we're going to sing it, uh, How Great Is Our God. And uh, Nick, you might want to turn it down just a little bit. Um, and also we'll take up the offering during this song as well.
if uh, Jim would ask God to bless the offering, please. Amen. All right. Uh, Junior Church. Junior Church is dismissed. All right, would you all turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians 15. We are in our second week of our series, The Deconstruction Zone. And uh, last week we laid a foundation of what deconstruction is all about. And... If you're not familiar with that terminology, I encourage you to go back and and, uh, watch it on Facebook uh, if you missed it. Uh, Deconstruction is basically the tearing down uh, of things that, uh, you know, something that you've always been taught, specifically in regards uh, to faith in God. Now, some replace it with their own version of God or, or, or even if there is a God. Um, some instead deconstruct the errors that were taught to them and they build back a better faith in God uh, based on His Word. And, and that's kind of it in a brief nutshell, but there's so much more to it. So uh, if you missed it, please go back and uh, watch that. Now, with all that said, uh, how many of y'all are do-it-yourselfers? You, you, you try to do it yourself. You, instead of taking it in to get it fixed or whatever, you're going to try to do it yourself. Now, uh, I, I'm that kind of guy. Now, some people are like that because, well, you know, uh, at least for me, I want to feel manly. You know, uh, I want to feel manly. Uh, uh, be, you know, but some of us, we do it because we can't afford to have someone else do it. Uh, or maybe we're just too cheap to get someone else to do it. Um, but uh, or, or maybe a better way of saying that we're trying to be a better stewards of the finances that God gave to us or whatever it is. But uh, for, for whatever reasons you do it, you do it yourself. Now, I've done a lot of things on my own cars that I've never done in my entire life. Prior to marriage, the, the, thing that I, the two things that I've done on my cars, well, three. I knew how to change a tire. I knew how to change the oil. And I knew how to change the radio out for a new one. That's... That's the only things I knew before marriage. After marriage, things drastically changed because I was no longer under my dad or my dad would help me fix things. Uh, It was now uh, all on my shoulders. So I got to change, um, let's see, what else? I I changed brakes. I knew how to do brakes and rotors. I knew how to change out a wheel hub. I knew how to change out shocks uh, on the car. Uh, actually, it was the minivan. Uh, but I changed a radiator. I even found out how to break into my parents' truck where that was running with both sets of keys in it that was locked. And I found all of that on YouTube. So thank you, YouTube, for all of that information. Um, <clears throat> but there, you know, there's something about tearing something apart to rebuild it that makes, at least makes me feel manly. You know, granted the radiator should have been changed in about 45 minutes. It took me about six hours. Um, But that's beside the point. When you learn to take some of the parts and put it back together, there comes an appreciation for that item. There comes an appreciation, a deeper understanding of how it works. 
So uh, that's really what deconstruction is, is kind of like. Uh, it's that tearing apart, putting it back together, and gaining a deeper understanding of God and His Word. As I said last week, some Christian circles don't like the idea. Uh, they feel that if you begin to ask questions, you're kind of falling away from the faith. And, well, I guess that could be true. But I believe that under a serious examination, a critical examination of our faith should take place in the life of every believer. Because we're saying, hey, I want to know what God's Word says. Not just what I've been told. I want to make sure that my life lines up to what He says. That's what we ought to strive for. Um, uh, maybe this is a little uh, uh, plug here, but uh, the last couple of weeks and for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at different things that uh, what the Bible says about uh, in Sunday school. So that starts at 945. Last week we talked about what the Bible says about women pastors. This week we began a discussion on what the Bible says about homosexuality. And we had a fantastic conversations in, in both of those uh, topics. We're going to continue on with the homosexuality next week. Who knows where we're going to go, you know, but uh, that's what we're, we're learning in Sunday school. So come on out. It's a great time. We, and we're meeting in the big room out there, so more people in there, the warmer it gets. So that's good. Okay, sorry. Um, let's see. Some of the greatest minds in human history have tackled some of the hardest questions about God, and they come away with a greater appreciation for and devotion to the Lord. Uh, just like how when I finished fixing my car's radiator, I knew my car a little bit better. I, I, think, that's, I think that's what God intends for us, whenever we have our doubts, whenever we have our questions, is that through them, through seeking uh, Him in the midst of them, that we would grow to know Him better. So the question that we're looking at today is, uh, aren't we better off without religion? I mean, that's a question that someone that is objecting to or in the process of deconstructing from Christianity. You know, that's something that they might ask. Aren't we better off without religion? Well, if that was the case, if, if there was, you know, let's put it this way. Are we better off with Christianity? Because there's a lot of the things that have been done in the name of Christ that has nothing to do with Christ. And so they look at that and they say, aren't we better off without it? Well, if that's the case, I told you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at verse number 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men the most pitiable. You might be looking at that and saying, huh, what do you mean? How, what does that have to do with what we're talking about? Paul is saying if Christianity isn't true and, and if we don't need it, then we are the most pitiful individuals. We're, the sorry, we're a sorry bunch. But praise the Lord, that's not the case. This morning I want to show you the truthfulness about Christianity. So the question, is, aren't we, uh, the question that many people ask is, aren't we better off without Christianity? Or without religion? My short answer, which you could probably guess, would be no. Uh, but I think that the, the question really boils down to, when people have this question, it boils down to three objections that they have. Um, you know, number one, it's the, the teachings of Christianity. Number two, it's the, the people of Christianity. And number three, it's the miracles of Christianity. And so we're going to look at each of those. So the first one that we're going to talk about is the teachings. It's teaching. I think there are a lot of questions that might point to this objection. I mean, doesn't, doesn't the Bible support slavery? How could a good God send people to hell? Uh, doesn't the Bible condemn homosexual individuals? 
I mean, the list goes on and on of all these things. And people say, there's no way that we need religion. There's no way that we need Christianity because of all the negativity that's in the Bible. Now, I don't have time to answer those questions in more uh, uh, in a way that they deserve, except to say that each of these questions is pointing to the Bible and saying, what that book says is immoral. Well, immoral, what does that mean? Well, what does it mean for something to be moral or immoral? A statement like that points to a standard of something that is good and something that is bad. And something that says that action falls here, that it's bad, or that action falls here according to this standard that is good. So, but who supplies that standard that we point to? I mean, we all have our own personal moral thumbprint, if you would, that is unique to us. And based on what we individually value and what we individually prioritize, the same action might be seen by one person as being good and another person as being wicked. If your answer to my question is yourself, that, well, I'm the the moral standard, um, and your own personal moral thumbprint, and and that there's nothing outside of yourself to direct that moral standard, then your, then your answer of the Bible being immoral is meaningless. I mean, we can all say, I don't like the Bible. Just in the same way that I will say, I don't like liver and onions. It's my personal opinion. I don't. Did you look at me like, really, you don't? That's just, ooh. Anyway, sorry. That's my personal opinion, Okay. But if it comes from outside of yourself, this, moral, this standard that society uh, supplies morals, then, then would that mean that the objective morals of the Texans are different than the objective morals of Pennsylvania? If that's what society says, because let's be honest, Pennsylvania is not Texas. Right? Or the objective morals of America are different than the objective morals of Saudi Arabia? Does that mean that in 1900 the idea of civil rights for black people was immoral, that they only became moral in the 1960s? If society agreed that rape was okay, would that make rape okay? If, if this is, I mean, this is where Christianity would traditionally step in and say, no, no. No, it's not okay. Uh, there's an objective, uh, uh, they would argue for an objective morality. That is a standard of good and bad that exists out there independent of what anybody else thinks. So if that standard says that rape is evil, and it doesn't matter what you feel or what you think, it's still evil. If everyone in the world thinks it's okay, it's still evil. I said before that a person's unique moral thumbprint, you know, that we all have is based on our individual values and priorities. It's it's what matters to them. In the same way, I don't think that we can have a complete, independent, uh, objective moral standard outside of ourselves without there being someone, some great cosmic being, if you would, who formed it on what matters to him. So we're faced with this dilemma. Either there is no moral standard outside of ourselves, which, let's be honest, let's look at society and say that's exactly what society says. In which case, whatever, you know, rape and liver and onions are the same. You know, I don't like them, but I can't actually condemn someone else who does like them. 
I'm talking liver and onions. Sorry, I don't know why I pointed at you when I said that. Or we can look inwardly and we recognize that there are things that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt is wrong. That I, that I feel are wrong the way that I feel the ground beneath my, way, my feet. And the moment we do, we realize that there is good and evil out there that does not care what I think. In that moment, we find ourselves looking up at the shadow of that cosmic being who has determined what is good and what is bad. So the question is, who is that cosmic being? Well, you're in church, but guess what? <laughs> you know what my answer is going to be. And that's what Christianity does answer. Flip over to, to Matthew 5, if you would. We'll be there in a few minutes. Matthew 5. I mean, that question of who that cosmic person is is what Christianity attempts to answer. Since, since you're here today, you probably know I'm going to say that that cosmic being is God. Christians believe that our moral framework has been revealed to us by God and recorded and given to us in the Bible. Now, what I find fascinating about the Bible is that in the Old Testament, God singles out a group of people, uh, the Israelites, to enjoy a unique relationship with Him. The way that they are to demonstrate that relationship is to adopt God's moral uh, uh, framework instead of their own. In the New Testament, He does the exact same thing, but with Christians. Christ followers are singled out to enjoy a unique uh, relationship as God's adopted children, but uh, we are instructed to take God's moral framework in the place of our own. Now, my natural moral thumbprint, my values, my priorities are not the same as God's. I mean, we all have that, okay? Um, I mean, if it was, then living out morality wouldn't single uh, me out from the rest of y'all. I mean, if we, we would all just be carbon copies of God's morals. In the Old Testament, God many times told the Israelites to stop acting like the nations that were around them. He tells them, don't intermarry with them, with these foreign people, because doing that uh, would make the Israelites behave like everybody else. In the New Testament, God says to the believers, uh, you've been adopted into God's family. You have been bought with the blood of Christ. So stop acting like you haven't been. But why should we? Why is God's moral framework better than my own? Is it just His personal preference? Uh, does He expect me to adopt it because God's bigger and more powerful than me? And might strike me dead if I don't? Is that what it is? Well, uh, let's look at what the Bible says, the reason God gives for you and I sh that we should lay down our morality, our priorities, in favor of His. I'm going to give you a few verses. We're going to look together at this one, and then i got a few more up on the screen. Okay? First one is Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Hopefully you'll see a pattern forming. Matthew 5, 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now look up on the screen, you'll see. Luke 6, 36. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Are you seeing it yet? 1 John 4, 19. Uh, <clears throat> we love Him because He first loved us. Ephesians 4, 24. Uh, and, and that you put on the new man which is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And then the last one, Leviticus 11.45. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt 
to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So did you catch the moral framework there? That moral framework uh, of why His is better than ours is because that is God's nature. It's His nature. It's His fundamental character of God. So, for the person who says, I don't need the Bible to tell me that rape is wrong, that murder is wrong, that I shouldn't lie, cheat, and steal, that may be so, but it is because God has given each of us an instinctive awareness, if you would, of His character so that we might see Him and that we might find Him. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, we'll get there later, but Romans chapter 1 says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His, etern- His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, each and every one of us has this instinctive longing for something bigger than ourselves. You know, we're, we're looking for something that's bigger than ourselves. And, and, and why do we do that? It's because God created us that way so that they, we would search Him out because He is the key that fits the lock that's in our lives, in the hole, okay? Um, To the Christian, God says, hey, that's my character. This is who I am. This is what I'm like. I want you to wear it when you go out into the world so that by your actions, by your words, people will see my justice, my mercy, my holiness. You know, it really bothers me when Christians, um, when they vacillate. You know what vacillate means? They go back and forth. Um, or, Or they even justify sin. They'll say, oh, I know what the Bible says about this. I know what the Bible says about love of money and pride or pride or whatever. And, and they might even say, I believe that's God's ideal, but it's just not realistic. I mean, come on, we live in 2024. I mean, you can't live like that today. I mean, if that's you, I mean, you're swimming in some very dangerous waters. As Christians, we are called to shine forth the character of God amid the darkness of this world. Even if it means that we're the only ones doing it. you get that? If you are here and you are a child of God, it doesn't matter what anybody else is doing. It should not matter what anybody else is doing. This is what we're called to be His light in this world. The problem is that uh, when we're not that light, we, we, we make excuses for our sins. And when we, when we make excuses for our sins, we tell an implicit lie, okay, by our actions about the character of God whose name we wear. We make excuses. We just like, well, it's not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. It's okay. No, it's not. When God says it's a sin, it's a sin. No matter what the world says. God says, don't do that. Don't be like that. Be that light that shines in the world. Don't make excuses for your sins. So the the first objection that people have is to the teachings of God's Word, the teachings of Christianity. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's good. It's wholesome. It's holy. It's things that we need in our lives. So that's the first objection. Um, Some of y'all are still writing. Sorry. We'll, uh, We'll wait to go to the next one. 
just for a second. The second objection to the to Christian faith is the people. Okay? It's the people. If you didn't get all of that, let me know. I'll, I'll make sure I get that to you. You might be thinking, okay, the Bible, I, the Bible, I get it. It does lay out a, a moral framework, which is beautiful. And it is an admirable goal to reflect the image of God, the character of God in my life. But how in the world do people who wear the name of Christ stack up to that morality? Well, let me ask you, how do you stack up to that morality? If God's morality and, and character says perfection is here, where do we fall into that line? On the floor? I mean, even in our own lives, we see that. We know that. Um, surely, if, if this institution, people will say, surely if this institution that was inaugurated by God, would, uh, you would expect to see an unbroken chain of mercy and forgiveness and humility, self-sacrifice, just running through the pages of history. But what do we see when we look at history? Let's be honest. What do we see? We see greed. Part of the Protestant Reformation was against uh, uh, the church that was selling indulgences. Y'all ever heard of that word, indulgences, uh, uh, in, the, in this context? What that was is basically they would sell you basically this ticket that is get out of jail from sin. You want forgiveness of sin? Well, if you pay enough money, then, then God can forgive your sin. And... Uh, we, that's just greed flat out. But it's not just that. I mean, we see it all over the place. We see uh, TV evangelists, TV preachers that are just, it's all about greed. It's all about how much they can get and what they can get. So you look at history, people that are associated with Christ, we see greed. Not only that, but we see bloodshed and conquest. There have been entire wars that have been fought in the name of Christ. It's estimated that as many as 2 million people died during the Crusades. All done in the name of Christ. We see not only that, but we also see the oppression and the abuse. I mean, during the Spanish Inquisition, as many as 300,000 Jews were forcibly converted to Catholicism or expelled from Spain. That trend of corruption and abuse even continues today. I mean, far too often there's some pastor who's been exposed uh, for abuse or embezzlement or some sexual sin. Uh, much more could be said about it, but Lord willing, uh, I'll talk about that in a few weeks, about hypocrisy. You know, it, it is inarguably true that people throughout history have acted monstrously in the name of Christ. I mean, you have to have a great deal of sympathy for someone who says, why would I want to have anything to do with an institution that puts forth leaders like that? Well, while we're at looking at history, you, you, you cannot skim through history books just cherry-picking out these examples of church failing without, well, failing to live up to the ideals that God had intended without finding that there are also examples of that when the go where the gospel has gone, people and society were changed for the better. 
Hospitals are Christian uh, invention. Public education is a Christian invention. Modern representative democracy is a Christian invention. You and I are beneficiaries of all these things because as believers who took seriously the teachings of Jesus and changed the world around them by using them, by using God. You know, as long as we're in the history books, even the periods of corruption and compromise in the institutional church, we see Christian leaders who stood up and spoke out loudly for, uh, against the injustice and spoke out loudly for justice of God, for mercy, for righteousness in their own times. You've got Martin Luther, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, um, and, and many more. I mean, we, we don't have time to go into detail, but look these guys up. Even during the darkest periods of the church, the pure, radiant light of the true gospel of Christ has never failed to shine forth. You know, one thing that the Bible never fails to acknowledge is, the, is uh, sin. Human sins, human corruption, human evil. Um, flip over to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. You know, it's one of the uh, uh, central themes in the Old Testament. God sends prophet after prophet to condemn the religious and political leaders of the nation of Israel for failure to lead the people of God in righteousness and holiness. Jesus, he does the same thing. He brings condemnation to the religious leaders of the day. Look at what he says uh, in Matthew 23, verse number 2. He says, um, this, <clears throat> saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. What does that mean? That means they're, they're in a position of spiritual uh, leadership over Israel. Verse 3, therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not according to their works, for they say and do not do. Jesus isn't pulling any punches. You look all throughout Matthew 23. He is, uh, he is devastated that Jerusalem, the city of God, the city whose righteousness was meant to shine like a blazing torch, that sit, was a city that rejected its Savior. I mean, you can't read Matthew 23, the whole chapter, and think that Jesus is going soft on the institution of the church the group of religious leaders, but notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, you know what, just throw it all out. Just ditch church, just ditch God. It's okay, don't worry about it because they're all evil. No. He never says that, you know, the, the corruption of the leaders is so bad that it's corrupted the message. He doesn't even say the, the Pharisees are the only uh, group in town, so, you know, so you have to stick with them. Because they weren't the only ones in town. The Pharisees were very ultra-Orthodox, very hardcore, strict sect. While the Sadducees was another group that was uh, uh, just, uh, I don't want to say popular, but they were spiritual leaders as well. But they were more casual. You know, they didn't believe in miracles. They picked and, choose, uh, picked and chose what, they, uh, uh, what parts of the Bible they wanted to believe. So in Matthew 23, when Jesus is condemning the Pharisees, he, said, he doesn't say, go be a Sadducee. He doesn't say that. Go back one chapter, if you would, because he's even saying the Sadducees got problems too. Uh, chapter 22, verse 29. Jesus is condemning the Sadducees. He says in verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. You see, for the, for the true follower of Christ, God wants you 
Well, God's intention is that we would know the Scriptures and the power of God. Just the exact opposite of what He told the Sadducees. The Sadducees, they didn't know it. They didn't know any of that. As far as the Pharisees went, Jesus said to the disciples, yes, they are corrupt. Yes, they have failed. But will their teachings line up with the God's Word? Follow that. Do that, but don't go further than what, the, you know, what God's Word says. And for us today, looking at, at leaders of the historic church, Jesus says basically, yeah, some of them have been corrupt. So yeah, some of them have failed. But where the teaching lines up with God's Word, you follow them that far and not one step further. Then, as now, Jesus calls his followers to experience a greater obedience to and devotion uh, uh, to, the, to the God of the Bible. Not the God of culture, not the God of my own personal moral thumbprint, but the God of the Bible. The thieves and the hypocrites who cloak themselves in the name of God don't change who God is. The acts of evil committed in God's name do not change who God is. One of the most repeated statements of the, in the gospel shows up six times in Matthew, nine times overall, is, Have you not read? Have you not read the scriptures? Have you not read what God has told you about himself? Jesus didn't say, Hey, let's make something new. He's saying, Come back. Come back to the gospel. Come back to God's word. So if you try to build your life on something else, than God's Word, you're going to be finding that your foundation is on sand. And how good of a foundation is sand? Not very good at all. So yes, there are some people, some leaders of the Christian faith that get it wrong. But guess what? We're all sinners. That doesn't excuse the sin that's going on. We ought to be following the Lord to the best of our ability, the best uh, of our knowledge. So that was, uh, it's the people. That's the second objection. The third objection is, man, I just don't believe in miracles. How in the world could that possibly happen? You know, this idea of, I might still reject the claim of, uh, to divine authority of the Bible, but it's, in, uh, it's unquestionable that the moral framework of the Bible has helped to form society as we know it. I mean, we've got hospitals and public schools and democracy, but that's exactly the point. We already have those things, so Christianity has served its purpose. We don't need it anymore. You know, there's a, a, a movement among atheistic thinkers who argue that Christianity was necessary for a time in order to give us a moral framework that we have today. But, just like they use scaffolding to help build a building, they say it's time to take that scaffolding down. It's time that Christianity goes away. To put it simply, many atheists want the morals without the miracles of God's Word. But is that all that religion is? Is that all that Christianity is? No, I don't think so. Flip over to Romans 1. Romans 1, we'll get there in, in just a moment. Anybody in here ever heard of Frederick Nietzsche? Okay, a couple of you may ha have. Frederick Nietzsche, he wrote something in 1882 that atheists have, they take this as their motto. He said, God is dead. That's what Frederick Nietzsche said in 1882. Uh, it was, it's become the battle cry of atheists who cheer as religious, uh, uh, the religious observance in America and the West 
has uh, declined over recent decades, but that's not the way that Nietzsche meant it, whenever that's what he said. His words were a warning that the West had just finished chipping away at the foundation upon which the society has been built. The danger was that without this foundation, the whole thing was at risk of falling to pieces. So what have we seen since 1882? Since people started taking God out of society here in the West, especially America. Well, we've seen two of the bloodiest wars this world has ever seen in World War I and World War II. They estimate anywhere between 75 to 120 million people died. Just for reference, that's every single man, woman, and child in Pennsylvania. New York, Florida, Texas, and California. All together. Dead. In those wars. We, see the, we saw the rise of two powerful atheistic empires, the USSR and the People's Republic of China, each of which is responsible for death of millions in their own people. Just to be clear, I'm not saying that atheists can't be immoral individuals. I think that one of the most compelling arguments against Christianity is that there are plenty of atheists out there that are good people. They're helpful. They're great. They, they, they're a benefit to society. And there are a lot of Christians who are just jerks. Unfortunately, uh, you know, I've met some Christians that are jerks, but the good atheist who gives to charity and volunteers at the soup kitchen, who helps the little old lady cross the street uh, is doing so because it feels good, not because there's any real distinction between helping the little old lady and knocking her down and taking her purse. What I'm saying is that when we look at a country whose roots are steeped in Christianity, like the United States what we see over time is the abol getting rid of <laughs> uh, getting getting rid of slavery, the uh, the expanse of women's rights, and the acknowledgement of equal worth of ethnic minorities. That progress didn't come as a rejection of Christianity; it emerged from the biblical principles that all people are created equal in God, in the image of God. The atheist revolution is always reaching for a humanistic uh, utopia, but it always ends in anarchy and despair. Men who try to form nations without God makes gods of themselves, and men make terrible gods. Now, Romans 1, I told you all to go there. Paul is talking about human beings after the fall. And I think we can glean some insight about whether we can have the morals of Christianity without the miracles. Verse 20. I read this earlier, but we're going to read it again. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were uh, thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they become fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. You see, what that is telling us is that the fingerprints of God is clearly visible across every inch of His creation. 
It's there. We can look inwardly at the the longings of our heart and outwardly at the world and perceive the character of God in uh, in the moral framework that was woven into our reality. It's so obvious and evident. Paul is saying that uh, we have no excuse not to seek God and to find Him and to know Him. But the great sin, he says, of human beings was that in spite of all the glories of God, the wonders of God that He shows Himself in, instead we worship the created instead of the Creator. You see, if we try to fashion for ourselves a Christless Christianity to, to, to have that moral without the miracles, then we are at best abandoning the worship of God to begin to worship something that's not Him. I mean, it's a sin as old as time. You know, that is the uh, to worship man, you know... That's the promise of the serpent in the Garden of Eden, right? Back on, back in Genesis 3. You know, he says, hey, just eat this and then you can become like God. Why worship Him when, 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 when by eating this you can become God? When you can be a thing that is going to be worshipped. But the irony is that God, God's intention was always for us to be like Him. To be like Him in the way that we love. To be like Him in the way that we show mercy. To be like Him in humility and self-sacrifice. To be like Him in the way that, that we forgive those who have wounded us. You know, the serpent's promise to Adam and Eve was to make them like God, knowing good and evil. Christ's promise is to make us like God by allowing us to choose the good. If you walk away from this service today thinking that the Christian life begins and ends with the morals of God, then, you know, that, that I failed you. That's not what it's about. The Christian life is not about outward obedience to a set of behavioral instructions or intellectual agreement to some, some morals. No, that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is an invitation by God to change us from the inside out. It is a supernatural transformation by the power of God that happens all at once in the instant that you get saved. When you pass from death into life, we become a new creation. But also, not only are we changed immediately, but we're also being changed that's gradually over a lifetime as a believer begins to say yes to God and no to sin. To say, God, your morality is more important than my morality. Your way is better than my way. And as we do that, the Spirit of God who lives in every believer shapes us into the people who who, who love what God loves, who honor what He calls holy, who grow to, to fit the name that He gives us in the moment when we believe to become children of God. I know this is kind of a different message. There are people out there that are object, making all kinds of objections to the faith of God, to, to Christianity as a whole. And I hope that I've been able to give you a little bit of help in those areas when, pe- when those discussions come up. Or maybe what you're struggling through right now yourself, or, or, or someone that you know, that hopefully you can help them see that 
The world is not better off without religion. The world is not better off without Christianity. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and trust in Christ. You, you, you've never done that. Maybe you've grown up in church and you've even worn the title of, of Christian for as long as you can remember, but you've never put your faith and trust in God. Today can be the day that you do that. You say, well, I don't know. What will people say? I don't care. Who cares what people say? If you know you need to get saved, get saved today. Maybe you've only been here a few times, and, but it, it, you know whatever time you've been here, and you say, you know what, I, I need to do this. I need to do this today. I need to put my faith and trust in Christ. Seek me out. Seek someone that you trust out to be, for us to be able to share with you from God's Word how you can be saved. You see, God is always inviting each and every one of us to a life that is richer and fuller and more alive than we can possibly imagine. Christian, you may be here and you're just not saying yes to God enough. You're saying yes to yourself too much. Maybe you need to repent of that and say, God, I'm sorry. I don't want to live like that. I want to live pleasing to you, holy to you. Following God is amazing. It's a lot of work, but let me tell you, it's well worth it. The benefits are out of this world. Would you stand with me as we go to the Lord in prayer? Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you made everything, that uh, you have invested all of it with your fingerprints, that we can see you in everything. Lord, I, I thank you that you are not a God that's far off, but that you want to be involved in our lives. You are near. You sent your Son to this earth, perfect, voluntarily going to the cross to die on our behalf, to take the penalty for our sins so that we who put our faith and trust in you can be free. Free from sin. Free from the power of sin. That we can stand in, in life and, and stand wearing your righteousness, being that light. Lord, I pray that you would speak to each and every one of us well, as you already have been. And I pray that you would lead us all to say yes to you, to obey you, God, I pray that you would use this message to strengthen us. Strengthen us in our faith and hopefully in the faith or our people that are seeking. Seeking you and trying to figure out what they believe. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts. Give us opportunities to share the gospel. Give us opportunities to be able to proclaim you as Lord and Savior. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing a verse of invitation. Just give you an opportunity to respond to the Lord um, just as I am. And uh, let's go ahead and sing that. Just as I am with
will challenge you this week and use you this week for his glory. Let's, uh, let's close in a word of prayer. And uh, I'm going to ask if Dave Weber would uh, close our service in prayer, please.